If you'd like to open your Bibles to Revelation 16, we're going to be looking at, at that passage this morning. I saw um, at the convention, Eric was there, and uh, he's doing well. I thought, I'd, for those of you who do know Eric, um, I thought I'd pass along that he has, uh, at the beginning of October, took a new position. He had been the associate pastor at Grand Avenue Baptist in um, Ames. And um, he stepped into a full-time role with Baptist Convention of Iowa to head up the pastoral support team. And so his job now is to travel around the state and listen to us sad pastors and pray with us and try to encourage us. Um, I think that he is very well equipped to weep with those who weep and uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and to... um, uh, bring to bear God's word in our lives uh, to keep going on and and keep in ministry. And so uh, pray for Eric. You know Eric. Um, Eric and I have a lot of similarities. Uh, we both write songs. We're both poets. We're, no, just kidding. We don't. He does. I don't, um, which makes me insecure around him. But uh, we both cry very easily, and uh, both of us... Uh, care about the hurts of other people and uh, uh, so be in prayer for him because that is a heavy that becomes a heavy thing after uh, a few trips to seeing pastors and listening to their stories and what's going on Uh, so be in prayer for him but he did send his greetings along to anybody who remembers him and wants to be greeted by him and uh, so hopefully uh, this morning uh, you'll be encouraged just to know where he's at We started uh, last week, Revelation 15 and 16, and the finishing of God's wrath. I pointed out to you that at the end of verse 15, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, John writes about the seven angels with the seven plagues in the seven golden bowls who come out to bring the wrath of God upon um, sinners. And... Uh, that with them in verse 1, it says, with them, these seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. And then in verse 8, it says, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Um, this, This 15 and 16 bring a conclusion to God's wrath and his judgment upon people who have been opposed to him and have rejected salvation through Jesus Christ. There is still some uh, finishing consequences that are going to come in relation to the destruction of every human being who lives on the face of the earth who has not trusted Christ, what Revelation refers to as those who dwell on the earth or those who are the earth dwellers. There is a final destruction, a final war that happens with Jesus. I've often said it's the shortest war in history, but there is a final war that will come, and then there is the great white throne judgment, which is the place where they are, every human being that is not a believer stands before God for final judgment and is cast uh, into the lake of fire. That's yet to come. This wrath is God's anger. It is his God's, well, you know what wrath means. it's not a word we use a lot anymore, but we, we know enough to know what wrath means. 
and where Romans talks about the wrath of God being stored up. Uh, what we see here in 15 and 16 is that dam bursts and the wrath of God is poured out on those who reject God. Last time we looked at the topic of justice in uh, chapter 16 in particular, that God is just, not a defense of God, but that what he does to judge the sins of mankind and womankind on the face of the earth proves that he is just. It is not a, just in case this is a little bit over the top, he really is just, but rather his justice is finally proven because his wrath comes out in judgment upon those who have sinned and have not trusted in Christ. This morning, I want us to look at, the, at a uh, partner theme in relation to the justice, and that is repentance, which we see in chapter 16 in a unusual, I think unusual and uh, unexpected way and very illogical way from a human standpoint. So let's this morning begin in verse one of chapter 16 and we'll read down through the end of chapter 16 and I want you to hear the statements about repentance in chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his blood into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, True and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. 
And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Go back a little bit in your mind to chapter 14, if you will. And uh, you're probably sitting there thinking, what happened in 14? I have no idea what happened in 14. Well, I'll tell you. You don't have to turn back there. I'm going to make it so easy for you this morning. From chapter 14, there was a story of John seeing three angels that flew over the earth. And if you remember, we spent time on those three angels. They each had a message that was proclaimed to the inhabitants of the entire world. And that first angel flew over the earth and proclaimed what John called an eternal gospel to the earth dwellers. And his eternal gospel was not Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of human beings so that they could be reconciled to God and know him and live forever with him in heaven. That eternal gospel was not, you know what, if you don't turn from your sin, you're going to go to hell. And you don't want to go to hell, do you? That's bad. That's painful. That's, that's eternal. You want to go to heaven. So here, come along. I'll punch your ticket. You pray this prayer and we'll all go to heaven together. That was not the eternal gospel that this angel proclaimed. This angel flew over the face of the earth and said, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And at that time, I drew your attention to three statements. Fear God, live in awe of him, who he is and what he has done. Glorify God for who he is and what he has done. And worship God for who he is and what he has done. Because of Christ, we should be in awe of the creator. Because of Christ, we should want to praise him and lift his name and glorify him. And because of Christ, we should worship him. Words of praise should come from a heart that has uh, love and admiration for who God is. And as I thought about this, and, and you know, I'm... I'm, when I'm in chapter 14 preaching, I'm already got my mind in 16, 17, 18. We're, I'm already there. And I'm, so there's stuff that's like, I can't talk about this today because I got to talk about this later on. I won't have anything to talk about then if I talk about it today. But out of that proclamation, as I read that in chapter 16, I mean, chapter 14, and kind of wrestled through the idea of an eternal gospel, which I explained how that worked to you in that day. As I thought about that proclamation of fear, glorify, and worship God, there were a couple questions that just kind of percolated in my mind that I wanted to present to you and ask you to think about. The first question 
was why was this proclamation necessary? Why was it necessary for an angel to come and cry out over the entire earth, fear God, glorify God, and worship God? And by the way, those are not couched in the language of suggestion or counsel. This is a really good idea for your life. You know, I, I think your life will go better with Coke. I mean, fear God, you know, all that. They're, they're couched, they're, they're not couched, they are spoken in the language of command. The, the, the language that I had this morning at breakfast, by the way, Terry, after you left, our sweet, loving, beautiful, elegant diva cat called Grace, which half the time does not live up to her name, but that's her name. Terry walked out the door and Grace jumped up on the breakfast table. Bam, right in front of me. Terry had to sing this morning and so she left early ahead of me and Grace is bang right there, sniffing around the table. And it wasn't like, Grace, I think it would be better for you if you got off the table this morning. Grace, I think, I think you need to understand that this is a human table and you should be in awe of humans and glorify me and get off my table. It was a command, Grace, get down, now. And Grace scurries and gets her rear end up and her tail's down and looking for a place to land and she jumped down. She doesn't get talked to that way very often and she ran off into the kitchen where Winston was. Winston's smart, he, he only goes up on the table during the night when we're not around. But Grace, she was looking out the window and on a table and Grace went down underneath of him on the ledge of the window and was cuddled up against him, Terry, looking for sympathy because he, she got yelled at. But that is the language and the tone. It's a command. Fear God. Glorify God. Worship God. Why did the angel need to command human beings to do that? And I, I'm hoping this is not a real stretch for you this morning, that maybe you're tired and it's hard to think, but I hope that you're catching the obvious answer. I needed to tell Grace to get off the table because she's not supposed to be on the table. And she, had to, and she knows she's not supposed to be on the table. If I pick up the squirt bottle, which was in the other room, and all I have to do is shake it, and she does the same behavior as if I l raised my voice at her. She knows what's coming, and she's out of there. There's, and there's great guilt that goes with it. People say cats don't have emotions. You just try having a cat for a while and you'll find out what's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on up there. Why do people have to be told to worship God? Yeah, Elizabeth said it, because they don't. And they won't. There is not a spark of divinity in us that we naturally look at the wonders of nature around us and say, what an incredible God made these things. We don't look at the, the intricacy of the human body and how fragile yet how strong it is. 
that for just a few chemicals to get out of, out of balance could, could kill you. And yet those same chemicals allow you to do incredible feats of strength at times and endurance. We don't look at that and say, wow, what a God. We stand back and say, boy, I sure hope Mother Nature doesn't bring us rain today. There is no divine spark in us. There is no divine thing a part of us. Paul makes it clear, as I said in the prayer time, that all of us have followed the prince of the power of the air and all of us have encouraged other people to do that. All of us have followed Satan. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you brood of vipers, he wasn't just standing back and throwing some nasty name at them. They knew exactly what he meant. A brood is a family. It's a place where snakes live, where vipers live. And by calling them vipers, he was calling them people who are obedient to and followers of Satan. And they knew exactly what he was saying. You're just a group and a family of vipers because your father, as he says in another place, is Satan, the serpent, the devil. And human beings need to be told to fear God, to glorify God, and to worship God because the reality is we live in awe of everything but God left to our own. And even as Christians, don't we do that? Even as I, I was reading somebody a couple weeks ago, um, and they referred to, to Christians in our normal state as sinner saints. I thought that was pretty good. Sinner saints. We are looking forward to the day where we are fully glorified without sin. In the meantime, we live every day in the mess of our fleshly inclinations and the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh and the boasting in who we are and what we have. Anytime you drive up, maybe I'm the only guy who does this. Maybe there's one other guy, I don't know. It's probably Scott, right? He would do this because he has such a cool car. But you drive up, you know, in your car next to somebody else and you look at him and go, man, what a rust bucket. And that is boasting in who I have and who I am. Which is of the world and not of the Father. An angel needed to travel across the globe where everyone could hear him and say, fear God, glorify God, and worship God because we don't, naturally. And he's calling for something to happen in the hearts of human beings that is not already present as he traverses the globe. The second question or idea that comes out of this statement in chapter 14 is why then? What is the motivation for that angel 
to be sent out over, I mean, again, this isn't like he just went out over Jerusalem or he went over the Middle East for a little while, like the plane with the sign on the banner over a stadium for a couple hours. This is an angel that travels the entire face of the globe and all the human beings hear him and see him. What's the motivation behind God sending out these angels or that angel to proclaim that message? And it's answered in chapter 14, which we won't go back and look at, but it's answered where it says, because the hour of judgment has come. What a God of mercy. These people, as we learn in chapter 16, deserve to be smashed. Because they have not only done things in following Satan, but they have encouraged other people to destroy themselves and, and to uh, become further enslaved to sin through their own actions and attitudes and statements. And God in mercy and love graciously sends this angel out because the hour of judgment has come. Some people say, why doesn't God send angels to, to proclaim the gospel instead of humans? Wouldn't more people come to know Christ if God sent an angel? And the resounding answer of chapter 14 and then in chapter 16 is absolutely not. The human population does not respond to this angel they don't really believe that an hour of judgment has come, but as this angel goes out over the globe and proclaims the eternal gospel, a command to change is being issued. And the reality is that those who ignore the message do so at their own peril. What they are about to find out, and we see in chapter 16, is that choices have consequences. We make choices every day, and our choices have consequences. I have said to my children for decades, <clears throat> you can choose what you wanna do, but you don't get to choose the consequences. I have had my children say to me, after directly disobeying something that I have said to them two or three times not to do, and watch them about to do it, you know, and I've learned you redirect, but you reach, you reach an age where you can't redirect anymore. You know? And for those, of, I'm sorry, Kim and Ellen, but there will come a stage where you cannot redirect anymore. And, and consequences are going to come. And they'll say, that's not fair, because they don't like the consequence. And my response has been, you had a choice. I made it very clear. You controlled the choice. I control the consequences. And if you don't like the consequences, 
then make the right choice up front. And if you aren't totally sure what those consequences are going to be, then you should be very sure not to make the choice that you made. But you don't control the consequences. And in chapter 16, humanity learns, and thankfully God warns us in advance, how much we don't control the consequences. And somebody might be sitting there thinking, well, tell me something I don't know. Tell me something that isn't so obvious. We live in a culture that promotes freedom of choice and freedom of will and is growing in its rejection of authority and consequence. I went to the, I think I mentioned, yeah, I did. I went to the Baptist Convention of Iowa annual meeting. Terry and I went on Friday and Saturday. And the first thing I noticed is how much turnover there's been in pastors in the Baptist Convention of Iowa over the last five years. I haven't been there for five years, about that much. And um, I just stood there and was looking for people my age, and there were not very many people my age there. There were a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and I'm thankful for their energy, and I'm thankful for fresh blood coming in to pastor churches, and I'm thankful for the number of churches that have been started in Iowa over the last five years. But I'm old enough to remember the 60s. I was a kid during the 60s. I wasn't a super aware kid in the 60s. I, I remember Kennedy being shot. I was three years old, thereabouts, two years old. And I can remember Kennedy being shot and it being displayed on the news. Um, I, I remember certain uh, big events. I was reading some material over the last year about the bombings that went on in Des Moines. How many of you knew that there were bombings in Des Moines in the 60s and early 70s? Not very many. Um, yeah, the post office, they were doing bombings there. Um, some of the uh, Black Panther groups were out doing it and uh, they were kind of at the heart of what was going on. The civil rights movement um, was huge and there was, um, a lot of violence going on on both sides uh, against each other uh, in that time frame. And, and for those of you who want the good old days, they never existed. Well, I take that back. The good old days existed in a garden in a place called Eden before two really stupid human beings ate fruit. Those were the good old days. Those were the true good old days. And there haven't been good old days since then. But I remember the sexual revolution of the 70s. Those were my teen years. And thankfully I was sheltered enough and stupid enough to not really know what was going on or how anything even really worked to make any decisions to do any of that. My mom said, first thing my mom said to Terry after meeting her, well, 
not right away, but within a day, she got Terry aside and said, just so you know, he has overactive hormones. Never let him get you in a room alone with him. And I was just like, what does she think I am, a rapist? You know, I'm just, I was just like, I, I didn't even know how to do any of that stuff in those days. I just it was like, this is crazy. But it was going on. And those were the seeds that were planted for what we're seeing today in our culture. The seeds of cultural revolution in the 60s, the seeds of cultural revolution in the 70s. I don't, I don't remember a lot about the 80s and 90s. I was working too hard to even know so much about what was going on around me besides who was president. And I didn't like certain guys and certain guys I wasn't sure about and certain guys I was very disillusioned with. But here we are in 2023, and we have a sexual revolution going on around us that is out of control. And even, even there's not even two clear sides anymore. Nobody can figure out what to do with this anymore. And we have an anti-authority thing that's going on that's just off the charts. And we have snot-nosed little kids in school saying, you know, right, tell me what to do. I know my rights. Get your hands off me because of an anti-authority thing that's taken over. And the gospel, the concept of a God in this culture today is said to be one that is a construct to control weak minds, a pacifier for the masses, but not a person to whom we will one day answer. The neo-atheists are not neo, they are atheists to a degree. They don't believe in God, but they worship their idols, which is themselves and what they do. But they're not new. Their arguments are the same arguments I was reading back in the 60s and 70s. And if you go back further, the atheists were making the same arguments they're making today. It's not, nothing, it's not anything new. But today's response is, you be your best you, I'll be mine. You have your truth, I have mine. It's important also that I speak my truth, as if it's some kind of thing that you've created that belongs to you. It doesn't even make sense to live together in a world that we're all just pursuing our own truth. You do you, I'll do me. But don't try to impose your religion on me or infer that I must obey his commands. But the fact is, whatever they may believe, God calls sinners to repent. He calls sinners to change. Can you imagine being one of those humans as an angel flies over you in the sky, big enough for you to see him and loud enough for you to hear, fear God, glorify God, worship God, God and human beings on earth going, you do you. You have your truth. I do me. I got mine. It's just stupid. But the reality is that that's how these people respond. I was thinking about this, and my mind went back to this guy named John the Baptist, a weird man. 
He goes around in camel hair and eating grasshoppers. Well, they're not technically grasshoppers. From a biological standpoint, they are locusts. But for the rest of us, and even though I teach science, for me, they're grasshoppers. They're big ones. And a little honey. How'd you like him for your pastor? You think I'm weird? Try John the Baptist. There he is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I got a leg stuck in there again. That was John the Baptist. But his message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. He was calling for life change. He was commanding life change. He used the language of command, repent. And he was calling and commanding life change because in their current state, they would be excluded from God's kingdom. And then you fast forward a little bit and this guy comes along, John's cousin, named Jesus, who begins his ministry, and he repeats John's call for repentance. This wasn't some strange man out in the middle of a desert who had kind of lost it somewhere along the line. But Jesus goes out to the masses and begins to preach, and he says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus takes it a step further. He comes with the same message of John and with the same command of John to repent, but he adds to it, believe in the gospel. Jesus was calling people to understand that not only their life needed to change, but their belief needed to change. And it wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. And if you keep going in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you'll hear Jesus get real pushy when he speaks his truth, (laughs) which is real truth. And he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you get the message in John 14 and what's going to happen in John 16? John 14 is building upon what Jesus proclaimed, what John proclaimed. Repent. Turn. Turn to God. Turn away from your your sin. Abandon it because bad things are coming. Really bad things are coming for those who don't. And today it sounds judgy. And I would say it sounded judgy back then. Fast forward to the last writing of the New Testament. Revelation, and it has 22 chapters, and in 22 chapters there are 12 calls to repent because Revelation is about, this is the beauty and wonder and splendor of what God's people who have trusted him by trusting in Jesus and are wanting him and waiting for him, this is all that awaits you. 
but to those who have not trusted in Jesus and have not responded to the gospel from God, this is what awaits you. And it's horrific because the wrath of God is coming. As we read Revelation, we hear commands to turn away from sexual immorality. And by the way, I want to be absolutely clear this morning because as time has gone on, sexual immorality has been redefined. And all that we as Christians seem to be speaking out against anymore is transgendered people. That's our hot topic, and we've left everything else behind. And we don't care about the rest. But when you hear the word sexual immorality in the Bible, what they're talking about is any kind of sexual act outside of marriage. Period. End of statement. And so when I see numbers that 70% of evangelical teenagers are no longer virgins, I say we have a problem with our messaging and what's going on in our homes. When the divorce rate among Christians is pushing in the 50s, something is wrong. When adultery is happening across the landscape in Christian homes, something is wrong. When we are saying it is okay to be LGBTQ and be in a relationship and we bless you because God accepts you as where you are, I cry out, fear God and glorify Him and worship Him. We are told to turn away from false teaching, and yet some of the biggest, most popular books in Christian circles today are and have been now for more than 10 to 15 years. Some of the most popular books are ones that make God a woman and tell you to do good works, to be nice to your neighbors. I was so disappointed to hear the other day in a podcast that the shack, which you're like, man, you're talking old stuff. The shack has sold over 100 million copies. And today, this is why they brought it up in the podcast, it is listed as one of the most popular sellers and study books in Christian circles. And I'm just going, seriously? We have commands in Revelation about sorcery, being involved in the occult. And by the way, that sorcery typically is a Greek word that we would translate into the English today. It's where we get our word pharmacology, drugs. It appears that there was a illicit drug problem in Paul's time and John's time as well. Commands to turn away from murder. Oh man, I'm glad you're on to something that I don't do. Uh, Jesus had that little statement, if you hate your brother, same as killing him. And 
And when we come to the end of Revelation in chapter 22, and we've seen this incredible city that comes down out of heaven, and it's the kingdom of God that comes to live on the earth, the new heaven and the new earth, and we see the beauty and the splendor, and we sit around and think about walls that are made out of layers and layers of gemstone, and we think about walking on streets of such pure gold that they're completely transparent, and, and all the stuff that goes with that. And, and we don't keep reading in Revelation to where it says in chapter 2, and outside the city are those who are sexually immoral and murderers. And boom, they're down the list. And it should ricochet us back to John the Baptist saying, repent. The kingdom of God is near. And Jesus saying, repent because the kingdom of God is near and believe. And there's severe judgment coming for those who don't believe. And here we come to chapter 16 where the golden bowl is poured out. And as I mentioned last week, that golden bowl, I believe, is tied to the golden bowls of the elders early in Revelation, which hold the prayers of the saints. And now those prayers of the saints for God to judge and bring justice are filled, that, that bowls, those bowls are filled with plagues. And that first plague is poured out and horrible, painful sores come upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like rotted blood, coagulating blood. The third angel pours out his bowls into the rivers and waters, the springs of water. They became blood. There's no water to drink. And again, I said last week, and I still think this way, I don't think it was like bam, 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 but the, the bowl is poured out, the plague is over the earth, and the people live with it for a period of time. And then the next bowl is poured out. Before they're healed of their sores, suddenly the sea becomes putrid. And there's no food to gain from the sea. And, and after dealing with that and smelling that, which would not stay on the coastlines, the smell of all the waters around the, the seas turning to coagulating rotted flesh would just go right across everywhere. And then to turn on your spigot where the water is coming out of the Cedar Rapids towers and red blood is coming out and you have nothing to drink. And the animals start to die and people are so thirsty. And then the fourth angel pours out his bowl in the sun and it begins to burn people with fire. You're beginning, your clothes are beginning to light on fire. And your skin is, is being seared. You talk about wearing your sunscreen, you'd need like UV 1000 for this or more. And the fifth angel pours out his bowl and incredible intense darkness that's painful in some way, that's anguishing in some way. And the sixth angel pours out his and a massive army begins to, begins to come across the earth and people are so angry and so ticked off that they, be, that they go out of their way. They find some kind of a massive 
human transport of people to a location begins to take place to engage in war. And the seventh one gets poured out, an earthquake so incredible that the earth is just flattened. Every city is flattened. Every mountain goes flat. There are no hills. There are no valleys. Everything goes flat, which means there is nowhere to hide. And then 100-pound hailstorms, boom, boom, all around you. And you would expect that sinners confronted by God, given the opportunity to avoid this judgment, would turn to him and away from their sin. But instead, we're told that these people, in verse 5, blasphemed, that word cursed means to blaspheme the name of God who had power over these plagues. And in verse 11, we're told they blasphemed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And in verse 21, they once again blaspheme God for the plague of hail. These, these people who have been warned by God, who have been commanded to repent, to worship, to fear, to glorify, instead worship the beast and got the mark of the beast intentionally. Again, I'm going to say you're not going to get tricked into that. It is something you know you are doing. And it is a religious experience. It's tied to worship. These people, as the plagues begin to fall down, they don't sit back and say, where is this coming from? What should we do? They shake their fists literally to the sky and say, blankety blank blank, you blanking God. Unreal. Three times. There's not a single person on the face of the earth, as the, I mean, this just blows my mind. There's not a single person on the face of the earth as they see all of the earth coming apart and they've all heard the message of repentance. None of them stand back and say, huh, maybe this was a really bad life choice. God save me. None of them do. None of them repent. Wouldn't you expect somebody to come to their senses? And, and here's the thing. This is what really caught my attention in this passage. It isn't that they don't know there's a God. It isn't that they don't believe there's a God. The human race collectively is going to gather for war against God. They know they're going to do that when they're doing it. They're shaking their fists at 
God and they know it. They are blaspheming God and they know it. Wow, I have gone way too long. But where, where in our minds this doesn't make any sense, I want you to try and wrap your brain around how a human being could respond this way to God knowing how powerful he is and knowing what he can do. I want you to wrap your brain around that and begin to understand how hard the human heart is and how much we love our sin. That's the problem. It isn't a problem of ignorance. It is their heart hates God. It is that their heart craves sin. And to turn and repent is to walk away from the beast and the great prostitute and their sin and their self-indulgence. And they don't want to do that. Again, think of all the stuff that's happening to them and they want their sin more. That is who we are without Christ. That's what we're seeing here in chapter 16 is not just the wrath of God coming out on unsuspecting human beings, but on, upon, upon human beings who have heard the call, the merciful call to repent and have waved it off in favor of the beast. Without a work of the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes and deaf ears and to change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, we will continue to embrace our sin and oppose God. But for the one who hears the gospel of Jesus and acknowledges their sin and seeks forgiveness in the blood of Jesus, God welcomes that sinner makes him or her a saint and claims him or her as their child. Do you understand the massive difference in God's response to human beings based upon their response to him? Here is this amazing, loving, merciful person. And when you put your faith and trust in him, he says, come on, you're mine, you're my kid, I love you, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not enough. That's the feeling you start to get, I'm not enough. And he says, it's, you're not, I'm taking care of that, come on, come with me. But I, but I did this, I know, Jesus paid for that, come with me. But you don't know what I've done. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm God. I'm omniscient. Come with me. But to the one who shakes their fist in unbelief and curses him, it's a totally different God they deal with. The same person. But they see his wrath. 
And all this made me also think about those of us sitting here today who affirm that God's word is authoritative. Do we? Is this book authoritative? Even if we don't know exactly what all that means, most of us would say, yeah, that's God's word to us. And so we believe this book is authoritative. And, and in faith, by God's grace, we have responded to God's offer of salvation and repentance of our sin. And yet, we still sin. And so the question I would pose to you this morning, is there still a need for Christians to repent? Forgiven, as somebody said this last couple days, I think it was Eric said that he heard somebody once say, that is, think of it as God has thrown all of your sin into a hole in the sea, and then he put a no fishing sign there. Can't go back. Nobody can go there to try and dredge anything up out of that hole. And God's not going to go back and dredge everything, anything back up from that hole. But forgiven, completely accepted, completely welcomed by God, is there still a need for us to repent? And my belief is yes. Not repentance in order to get him to listen to me. Not repentance in order for him to talk to me. Not repentance for him to welcome me. Not repentance for him to bless me. That's a whole nother series of sermons on blessing. I gotta hang up about that one. Repentance for the believer is not about establishing or bettering my relationship with God. Repentance for the believer is an acknowledgement that I have sinned. And I don't want to live there anymore. I don't want to be there anymore. There's an old Christian song that comes back to my mind every once in a while. Uh, it, it's from the 60s. My dad used to play the Christian radio station in our house all the time, KRKS, uh, in Denver. And there was this song, um, and I don't remember the title of it was, but the main statement is it was, the main story in it is this man comes home, he used to come home drunk, and he, his little boy would hide behind the door and when he'd come into the house, he'd come home drunk and he would be abusive with the boy, he'd beat him. And the kid lived in fear of him. And as the story goes on, one day this man in the story comes to know Jesus and he comes home and he opens the door and the little boy runs and hides behind the door again and, and he says to the little boy, you don't have to do that. That man doesn't live here anymore. And it's cheesy, and it's got cheesy music, but it's true. And yet, that man is going to still sin. And God calls us to turn from our sin, to change 
our mind about sin and from the inside out began to grow. We talked to another lady this weekend, uh, somebody who we're becoming good friends with uh, in Ankeny. We were talking about just life and the choices that she make, we make. And she said, our pastor was preaching on change recently, and he said that, that we want to go from point A to point B and be done with it, and change is incremental. It's slow. But it's this whole thing about a long obedience in the same direction. It's this whole thing that's wrapped up in that God is not concerned as much about your perfection as he is in your direction. Remember that one? Warren Wearsby, it's not my saying. And that moving in that direction is a constant no. No, and when I, when I turn around and I start to embrace the sin or I do embrace the sin and then that, that sense that I sin begins to set into me and I'm aware of my sin and that it was wrong, then it is a God, you know what I did. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for that Jesus took my sin upon the cross and I want to cooperate with you by your gracious work in me through the Holy Spirit to move forward in obedience. And over time, that man begins to not live there anymore. There should be godly sorrow over the choices we have made and a desire to pursue obedience to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just throw this in here for fun this morning. That means that every once in a while you're going to have to sit down with your kids and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Repentance from sin requires humility. Humility draws us to the heart of God and brings change. But I want to encourage you this morning as I said to that lady that we were talking with and we are also to remember that we are not what we were. Because of the Holy Spirit and His work in us, believers are changing into the image of Jesus. And I want you to think back 10, 20 years, if that's possible, and remember who you were as either an unbeliever or as a believing saint. And I want you to look at where you are now and ask yourself, have I changed? Am I different? And then I want you not to stay in the past and I don't want you to stay in the present. I want you to look forward and I want you to see the image of Jesus and who he is and what he's all about and I want you to say, I've got a long, long way to go.
I'm not who I was. I am not yet at all what I'm going to be. I also want you this morning, when tempted by sin, to remember two things from Revelation 16. I want you to firmly etch into your mind the judgment and wrath of God, not because it's going to be poured out on you as a child of God, but for you to understand how much God hates that sin. And second, I want you to consider what it meant when we hear that Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross for your sin. To hang there for hours and experience what is described in Revelation 16. We can barely imagine, begin to imagine, what he endured for us that day. And then I want to encourage you that with those realities in mind, to go forward in obedience to the one who suffered and died in our place. It will transform us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, as I read Revelation 16, all I can say is thank you for how good you've been to us. Having been one a person who in very, very difficult circumstances laid on the floor and cursed you. And said, I don't want you. I don't want to hear about you. I stand here today because of your mercy and your love and your faithfulness to be able to say, I love you. And you have been so good to me. Father, will you help us to realize how much you hate sin and how much you have done in our lives to bring us away from sin and into freedom of the Spirit. Father, may we not only be mindful of these things, but as we say every week, may you help us to remember the steadfast love of the Lord. In your son's name, amen.